Hey folks, this is Brian. Do you like listening to the commentary tracks on movies? Well, we know we do. So you know what you can do? You can tune in to us at Nerdonomy.com on March 2nd at 5.30 p.m. to listen to our live Oscar podcast. That's right. For the second year in a row, we are going to be giving the Academy Awards the nerds on film treatment that you know and love. Tune in. It'll be awesome. Thanks. So, Brian, you know I watch a lot of Doctor Who, and yep. I've, I've been experimenting with the concept of telepathic hypnosis. <laughs> you're, you're joking. No, I'm not joking. You think you can actually control minds telepathically? I am the master. Oh, God. Here we go. You will obey me. No, I'm not. You will obey me. I will obey you. You will agree to a four-part series on the history of the troll doll. I will agree to a four-part series on the history of the troll doll. You will sign over the lease on your car to me. I will sign over the lease of my car to you. You will give me all of your Batman figurines. I... I... No! Fight it! I'm free. You will not control me. And no, you will not get my Batman figurines. And you are not getting my car. But I'm okay with the troll dolls. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Brian Moriarty. You, you, you want to say it a second time? <laughs> With the dramatic pause? Uh-huh. Take it up. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Brian Moriarty. Maybe just a third time for good measure. Sure. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Brian Moriarty. And I'm Eric Brickmont, and yes, I've made Brian say it three times in a row. And to listeners, you don't understand why, but we were, we were just having what I think is probably the silliest argument in all of Nerdonomy history. Who says it first? I think this is fun. I think we should let our listeners in on this little secret, because Brian and I, every week, we, we generally, for no reason at all, go back and forth and we, we, we decide, okay, well, okay, one week I'm going to say, welcome to Nerds on History. Now, Brian, can you go ahead? You say welcome to Nerds on History. Right. So we do Why? Get... Why have we been doing this? Variety, I guess. Variety. <laughs> I mean, it's not like it's we're all of a sudden different people. And we've just we've consistently done that for seventy four episodes. Seventy four. Yeah, we have. I mean the with the exception of the ones where I wasn't there and the one time you weren't there. So nevertheless, it's been this recurring trend, right? And so yeah, we had a little tiff. We had a little tiff about who was going to do it. And Eric was insisting that he was going to do it. And if he had done that... Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. What I had said, because the question was, okay, well, who did it last week? And I thought thought you had done it last week. I didn't realize I did it last week. I'm not trying to monopolize on the first person to talk on the episode. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Are we good now? We're fine, dude. I never had an issue. Excellent. I'm, I'm glad. Well, sir. So, Troll Dolls. So part no, series. Let's, let's take a quick second though, because I was at your baby shower a week ago. You were. That was kind of crazy. It was the craziest baby shower I've ever been to. Was it really? It was totally crazy. Why was it crazy, folks? You would never expect to put the words "wild" in front of baby shower, but oh my god, that happened. 
I still, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, how was it wild? Tell me how it was wild. There was baby food tasting. And a cake made out of diapers. And we had to make things <laughs> out, of, out of Play-Doh, homemade Play-Doh. It was an experience. I'll say that. It was an experience. It was fun. It was, it was a lot it, of fun. It's wild if you... If, uh, if you're an extremely you, sheltered individual. If, if you get your kicks at Community Center Bingo... This was a wild party. <laughs> I don't know. I think community center bingo is usually a lot more wild than, uh, than the it's baby true. shower. It's true. You see so many old ladies just like elbowing other people just to get... Isn't it funny how everything has come back to troll dolls in just the first couple of sentences that we've had on I this? I know. Yeah, it's crazy. You've but, seen those but, troll... The, the troll dolls that they hold on to. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The bingo calls for good luck and all that. It, it is kind of weird. We just came full circle, folks. But in all seriousness, <laughs> you had a baby shower. You're going to be a dad again. It's kind of uh, crazy. And, yeah, like, everyone is... else is making a big deal about it. This is my third kid. After the, after the second one, there's no more mystery. There's no more surprise. I've seen it all. Been through it all. And now it's just, I'm excited because I'm going to have another baby. But I don't have all those same kind of, I don't know, pre-baby jitters, I guess you'd say, that you had the first time. Because when you're a first-time dad, you don't know what to okay, expect. Okay, so I'm curious. What are the, the kind of jitters you have? Is it like, oh, my God, I hope it doesn't have three feet? Because like, <laughs> like, like, you know that now. We have x-rays. We have ultrasounds that can figure this out way in advance. So what kind of jitters? They're tiny little human beings, right? So you don't want to drop them or, you know, squeeze them too hard. And they're, they're, you, you know, you hold a baby for the first time. A newborn baby, they're very, very delicate. Changing the first diaper is a frightening experience because you have absolutely no idea the phases of poop that these kids go through. You really don't. It's frightening. It go. It changes. It's like the doctor. It regenerates into all these different <laughs> kinds of poops. And the first Folks, one... that's right. You just heard Eric Brickmont <laughs> make a Doctor Who reference to scatology. It's true, though. The first, It's like tar when it comes out for the first time. And you're freaking out. And you're like... What is wrong with my child? Is it is it been possessed by the thing or or the creature from the Black Lagoon? What is going on with my baby? Thank you for listening to Nerds on History, folks. We'll be back <laughs> next week. I'm going to go vomit. Excuse me. Ladies I, and gentlemen, I, welcome to today's episode uh, topic, the history of poop. I, I, I'm I sorry. I'm not making light of it. Uh, well, I am making light of it, but I don't, <laughs> I don't mean to offend is what I'm saying. You're not offending me. No, no, no. I just, it's... I love kids, and I want to have kids one day. I totally do. It's just that is kind of a, a horrifying thought. Now that's going to be on my brain <laughs> the moment I have kids. It's like, oh, God, when's the tar coming out? <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. It happens very, very soon. Yeah. It's, so, it's, it's a weird experience. Okay. Fair anyway. Enough. Um, I think for me it was weird because I'm, I'm, I just turned 29 recently. I've irrevocably been an adult for a while now, but it's those weird moments like, Oh, I'm going to a, to a baby shower, and oh, it's not for a family member. It's for my friend because yeah. he's having a child. It's those moments. You're like, oh, crap, I'm an adult, and yet I get to do this. I get to do fun, nerdy stuff, but yet I'm an I'm a functioning adult. So it's a little weird. It was but an cool. eye opener for you. It's it's a good weird. It's a good yeah. weird. Don't get me wrong. And I'm excited for you, man. I really am. I am I am absolutely thrilled. I I cannot wait. I have two absolutely fantastic, beautiful, amazing, funny, smart, clever sarcastic as hell little girls <laughs> sophie's sophie's they're is just like me they are yeah. they are exactly like me yeah and uh i couldn't be happier to add one more yeah. to the mix lucy is a doll 
Sophie is a wild one. She's going to be the wild one. You know that. I don't know. I think she's more of the... Um, oh, I, I think she's going to be the comedian more than anyone. I don't doubt that for one moment. She's trying to master the telling of jokes. And she's she's not quite there. <laughs> well, it's total second child syndrome. She's yeah. trying to get attention. So, yeah. of course, she's going to... And that's the way she figured out she can gain uh, social currency. Is yeah. to be funny. The jokes are pretty... She tells a story pretty much. And she says, is that funny? And I'm brutally honest with her. No, not really. <laughs> but let me tell you how it can be. So I, 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 I'm teaching her about punchlines. That's our big You're thing right teaching now. her to take criticism very, very yeah. early on, too. <laughs> Is she visually upset when she's told it's not no, funny? No, not at all. She's like, oh. And then I tell her what would be funny, and then we laugh about it. This is critical, because if she's a comedian, oh my god, you've just given her bulletproof powers. She can she's, handle any she, kind of... She's my daughter. Let's just put it that way. All right, fair enough. And yes, I will teach her the power of the pun. Puns are good. Yeah. Brian, put the gun down. Put the gun down. <laughs> so I'm doing well, obviously. How are you? I'm doing great. I had a very big project at work that I've been working on uh, that just came to fruition yesterday. And it went... That you did an excellent job on, by the way. It went very, very well, indeed. It may have scored Brian about a thousand brownie points. So I'm, I'm very, very happy. You're on your way to den, mother. And that joke still doesn't get funnier <laughs> after you did. You made that joke at dinner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's funny. We're just joking. Den mother... It's just... Wow. Yes, I am. I am one step closer to den motherhood. Is there are there den dads? Because there's got to be one stay at home dad. I don't think so. See, that's a movie. That's a movie. It's the stay at home dad who has to take to his the daughter, brownies. His, take his daughter to brownies, <laughs> and he's the one den dad <laughs> amongst all the den mothers. There's a movie somewhere there. So yeah, other than that, you no, know, same old. Trying to complete the Nerdonomy Oscar challenge, and I'm now two levels of the three complete. That's good. That's yeah, excellent. Dave, Dave and I are doing the marathon starting this Saturday. Or actually, in this case, it would have been three days ago after, by the time you get this episode. Uh, so yeah, revving up for the Oscars, man. It's my favorite time of year, next to Christmas. So I'm stoked. I'm totally stoked. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. Indeed. And hopefully, now, you, maybe you'll be there for a cameo, but you, know, you might have to deal with new baby Yeah, business. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. I prob- probably not, listeners. Sorry. Let's get on to feedback, shall we? Let us. This week in Listener Feedback. Our first piece of Listener Feedback comes from Owen. And uh, Owen says, Hey guys, as a fan of the show, I wanted to thank you for the podcast, which keeps my mind occupied and entertained. Owen, you're welcome. He continues, I just wanted to share a book with you. Having come across it, I thought of you as it seems to cover a cross-section of interest to you too. Two as in you and me, Brian. Uh, So here's an Amazon link, uh, should you wish to explore it, and my thanks, Owen. And I I clicked on the link, and it's a book called Christ in Egypt, the Horus-Jesus Connection. Looks interesting. I've actually heard of this idea, I I, I don't want to call it a theory, because there's no unified theory behind it, but more or less what it's talking about is the connections between early Christianity and the symbolism behind Christianity and its figures, its main figureheads, in this case, predominantly Jesus, and then also Horus, who was the son of the god Osiris, representation of the pharaoh, king on earth. A lot of the connections between... There are a lot of rhetorical parallels yeah, between Mary the Yeah, Mary and Isis have some sort of parallel, like you're saying. So, yeah, and it's hard to tell exactly what the, the true connection between all of this is. And I haven't read the particular book that, um, that Owen, that you're suggesting. However, it looks very interesting. And I would love to do a, an Egyptian parallel to Christianity. I think that should be an episode. Absolutely. It would be a wonderful episode. And we can explore some of these theories a little bit. And whether or not they, they turn out to be true, 
uh, just the fact that there are parallels is interesting in of itself, I think. No, totally. We have another piece of feedback from Nick. Nick says, first off, I would like to tell you all, all of you, that your podcast, both Nerds on History and Nerds on Film, get me through my long, surprisingly boring days as a chef, along with my one-hour-each-way walking commute, usually through the horrid, pouring rain of beautiful Portland, Oregon. I am an avid history fan and would say that your podcast has surpassed all others in terms of depth and quality, including... Dan Carlin, don't tell him I said that. I love him too. And stuff. I think he's referring to stuff you missed in history class. That is high praise. And and Nick, don't worry. I'm pretty sure Dan Carlin does not listen to our podcast, so I'm, I'm sure he did not hear that. But he'll be getting an email soon. <laughs> <laughs> the amazing discussion group dynamic that you guys all have on both shows really reminds me as to why I studied history and art history in college and why I still surround myself with nerds. All right, enough fanboying. I loved your last episode, especially the conspiracy involving Clinton. I laughed so loud that one of my waiters came back to see if I was okay, as a guest had commented. <laughs> I was surprised to see Eric uh, missing a, uh, a key Doctor Who parallel relating to the MK Ultra and hypnosis. Eric did kick himself for this after the fact. I most certainly did. Especially the blood hypnosis not being able to override the self-preservation in Series 2, Episode 1. He even made that same oh, I, reference. Nick, you have endeared yourself to me for the rest of, of time and space. <laughs> I forgive you, though, as only I recently rewatched the episode with the love of my life, who I'm slowly bringing into the Whovian family. Stellar episode, though. I would love to see, or rather hear, NOH do an episode on the Sephardic Jewish diaspora, as I myself am a Sephardic uh, Istrian Jew, and our people have been uh, massively overlooked when it comes to representation in Jewish culture, uh, whether it be pop culture or in Israel itself, I think it would be make it very interesting episode in its own right. And I would, it really mean a lot to me to see the Sephardium represented uh, as more than the footnote in the Spanish Inquisition, especially considering that me and my uh, Misrahi are quite a numerous people with our own interesting traditions. Sweet potato latkes. Oh, sweet potato, sweet potato latke sounds awesome. Anyway, I love your shows and keep being amazing because I would die of boredom without you. Yeah, the Sephardic Jews, the, they're the Eastern Mediterranean Jews. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not, and we're used to talking about Jews from Eastern Europe, of course. And this is, a, yeah, this is a whole other facet of Judaism that we don't get to speak about. We should totally do an episode on that. Let the future topics keep on flowing, folks. Yeah, yeah. You, some of our listeners have given us some of our greatest episodes. So I, I think it's a, a great idea. Well, he has more to say. He has not one, but two postscripts. I believe one of them involves me. P.S. The recent meat episode made me also think about how a history of the transition of the service industry from being in-house to outsourced restaurants might be interesting. Maybe for a May Day labor-themed episode. Mm, okay. Interesting. Take that into consideration. P.P.S. At sign Eric Brickmont. I grew up in College Park and spent much of my youth at the Rosicrucian Museum. I just wanted to say thank you for your involvement of that. It was one of my favorite places as well as a refuge for me as a nerdy, history-loving punk rock teenager. Nick, thank you so much. That that comment alone uh, really touched me. I had a, a long and wonderful time at that museum. I'm glad that uh, it was able to also influence you. And uh, who knows? Maybe I, maybe I give you a tour. I was going to say, maybe you guys actually met at one point in time. Yeah. It's very likely. I used to walk the grounds all the time, so you maybe, never know. Maybe that's why he was saying thank you. Maybe he did remember you as a guide. I very much doubt it. 
but nonetheless, I'm just I really appreciate maybe. it. Maybe you never know, but I, I maybe nonetheless, I appreciate the sentiment very much. Thank you very much, Nick. Uh, I've got another one. This one comes to us from Twitter. Twitter. This comes from uh, Cameron. As a history teacher, I enjoy my weekly dose of nerds from at Nerdonomy. Thanks at Brian Moriarty and at the Brickmont for keeping my brain entertained. I love it. Love it when we get feedback from teachers. I do too. It, <laughs> when we know that we're being listened to by history teachers, that's a, to me a very validating sign. Because I've never considered our show academic. It's just been more informal and discussion. Even though we do our research, we do, we do make lots of effort to make it accurate. It's a very good feeling when that happens. Well, these folks are my, my heroes. I, I absolutely love teachers. I love them all. And thank you very much, Cameron. I love you as well. The patience and the perseverance that you show day to day does not get enough praise in our society. Well, you have praise amongst us. Yeah, absolutely. They are they are unsung heroes and uh, really the uh, cream of the crop. For the record, let me just put out and say this. It is not your job to make sure your kids get A's. It's their job to make sure they get A's. You're there to give them the information and do everything you can so that they can absorb the information, but it still comes down to them. I think that's a really unfortunate reality that's changed in the past couple of decades. Yeah, but it's, it is definitely the job of a teacher, if they can, to inspire that greatness in their students. Absolutely. Definitely. We can go off on the grading system. We've already done it, actually, at this point. If everyone's ever wondering, we do have a whole episode on the education system. Eric and I, being educators ourselves, we are so, so pro teacher it's not even funny yeah absolutely uh we have one more piece of feedback from dave a new regular feedback giver i would say because he's given us like three pieces of feedback in the last month uh subject monuments men i just finished listening to the book monuments men from audible.com and it was far better than the movie show idea the spice road and its influence on east and west you know our audience keeps giving us episode ideas. We seriously have a backlog of like two years of episodes. That, yeah, I know. <laughs> that we, we, we haven't recorded yet, but we have ideas for. And, and we that, haven't gotten to any of them and yet. And that literally came from one afternoon of us just sitting down and spending like an hour and just spitting out ideas. Yeah. So, yeah. folks, we're not shy for content, but please keep it coming. It's awesome. I'm curious, though, Dave, did you do this before or after hearing our episode on the Monuments Men? Because that just went live yesterday, and it looks like you... Uh, emailed us that the evening of so yeah, he, he must have already completed it but had of the book at least yeah yeah but wanted to, to mention it probably due to the episode itself well sir we hope you clicked on the audible link because if you did you gave us a little bit of a commission yeah if you haven't go sign up for audible 30-day free trial listen to the monuments men book tell us what you think and like brian said we also get a little bit of money because of it Yes, we do. As you guys may have already noticed, we've been kind of keeping things laid back. And you know what? We're going we're gonna to take a slight detour. We've done some pretty interesting subjects. We talked about the Seven Wonders of the World. We did a Conspiracy Theories episode. We did a very serious episode last week. About, about the Monuments Men. Monuments Men. And mm-hmm. more or less talking about the attempted cultural annihilation of non-Germanic peoples in Europe, which is very heavy. Yeah. It's been a heavy month. Yeah. So we're going to lighten the load a little bit. Just a little bit, yeah. And for me, as I was saying earlier, this is my favorite time of year because we get to talk about the Academy Awards. I know we've talked about film already. It was Cinematron Prime was the episode where we talked about the technology behind film. Still one of my favorite episode titles of all time. Best, best episode title. And it was a great episode, but it was very, very quick 
it was very tour de force and it was very brief about the history of, of, of the film industry. Right. I think it focused more on the technology and the way that technology evolved the film industry as opposed to the way the film industry evolved in its own ways. Right. And this episode that's film related we're going to do is we're going to devote to movie palaces because, well, first off, they're, they're beautiful, right? They are a perfect sign of architecture, which is, of course, a sign of history and culture. But the fact that they're not around very much anymore is also, we need to talk about that story. Talk about what changed about America that really, first off, that led to them being big in the first place, because that in and of itself is kind of controversial. And then the second part is, well, why don't we have that many of them left anymore? There were 1.000s. Of movie palaces in tens the of thousands, yeah. tens of thousands, tens of thousands of these opulent, extremely well constructed, very large. Some of them could help held up to three thousand people. Yeah, so, some were so beautifully ornate in their decorations that you could easily imagine yourself walking into a millionaire's mansion or uh, walking the halls of the Louvre. I mean, th- this is a truly incredible example of of not just architectural sophistication, but also just the, the way that they presented themselves, these buildings had personality. They were really something. They're really wonderful. And the few that are left, we're, we're going to talk about uh, as well. You know, I think it's worth stating that the the evolution of movie palaces really is the story of early 20th century America. Yeah, it mirrors, very much so. It mirrors so much everything that's going on politically, economically, and socially in and the country. And technologically as well. And technologically, yeah. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And I didn't realize how fascinating it was until you had brought up the subject and we we started researching it. (laughs) No, you know, the first time I heard it, I'll be honest, I was kind of like, well, I don't know, where are we going to go with this? Can we really talk about this for an hour? And I stand corrected. Yeah. So why don't we take, as we always, we'll start with the foundation, right? We talked about back in the Cinematron Prime episode, that's a good prep for this if you want to listen to that one before you listen to this. We'll wait. Welcome Welcome back. back. But just for those who maybe have did not take part in our fun little gag there, we you know we're talking about the early 20th century at this point, also the late 19th century. Yeah, what was going on in the film world was being controlled in France and in the United States. The Lumiere brothers had, of course, made success with their cinematograph combination camera and projector in France, and there were in France they had taken on much more of an art house kind of kind of motif going on in America. Edison was the dominator, the very, very early dominator of the film camera. In the kinescope. In the kinescope. And he had his own studio. He was making his own quick little short films. And they were distributed through um, Nickelodeons. You know, they were distributed as you paid a nickel and you got to watch this literally maybe 20 second movie. That's how short they were. And then as they finally were able to make longer and longer bits of film, because originally movies were not shot on film. They were shot on wax, interestingly enough. They were able to find that they could do longer and longer pieces. And then finally, you start to see theaters start to arise. But not in the sense of that we have them today. They were vaudeville theaters. They were theaters that were already being used for stage work. They just were throwing down a screen and they were putting up the movies that way. Now, for the sake of our listeners who don't have um, an understanding of theater performance in the, the early 20th century... Give me a real quick overview. What was the, the vaudeville phenomena? Well, the vaudeville was the musical review. There's not much of it left nowadays. Um, but there are a few musicals that, that have been made that are callbacks to that era. The idea of a musical review is kind of like what ends up becoming Saturday Night Live. Okay. If you think about it. Okay, sure. that's, that's the closest thing we have left to that. There's, so a series of kind of skits and activities and shorts. and Right. There's, there's essentially there's musical review and there's book musicals. 
Book musicals are the ones we're used to today where they have a consistent narrative going through the entire show. Okay. Right. And that's not to say that musical reviews didn't have that. There were some that did, but the focus was was kind of like a, it was a variety act. You know, there weren't always going to be one consistent through line. There was definitely things that were threaded together, but were to make way for different performance styles. So when I think of vaudeville, I think of two things. I think of that um, very typical character with the short straw hat and the cane and the pinstripe suit, and he comes out and he does the little little dance number, little yeah. dance number, and what have you. And then I think of that same thing, but in alien form from the movie Spaceballs. Oh, from the Hello, My Bit Baby, yeah. Michigan J. Frog bit. <laughs> yeah, totally. That would certainly have been part of it. There would have always been a dance number. There would have always been some musical numbers. There may have been a couple comedy gags here and there. There, there may have even been a few parasitic alien creatures just dating in somebody's chest. We don't know. We don't have it on video. We do know about that. I mean, keep in mind, the earliest, uh, like the Ziegfeld Follies, the most vaudevillian show that was in New York, I mean, they had a muscle man in it at first. That was that was one of their gags. They, they were, have not a strong gags. man up there. Oh, yeah, that mm-hmm. was one of their acts. They had a guy who was just flexing his muscles. Yeah, you know? or someone who was lifting, uh, you know, two or three people up sure. while holding them on a, on a two-by-four or what have you. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, as it evolved, it got further away from the, the, the novelty acts and more into musical theater-ish things and then finally we made the transition into just you know straight on musical theater as yeah. we know it today really that happened with showboat but that actually showboat was late 1920s right around when we transitioned into into talkies so it's film had already been around at this point in time theater was kind of evolving because the vaudevillian actors were kind of finding their way in the movies right laurel and hardy the Marx Brothers, those were all vaudeville actors who had worked their way into film. Yeah, I mean, it, it's worth stating the type of movies that we're talking about in the early 20th century to the point that where you're talking about. Because movies originally were very, very short. Some were just a matter of seconds long. Right. And it was more just the novelty of being able to go and see these impressive moving pictures on screen that were pulling people Correct. in originally. Because let's face it, having a still photo is nice, but it's not nearly as impressive. And if you lived... At a time when, on average, you only left your home and traveled maybe a total of 20 or 30 miles in any given direction, you didn't have the kind of life experiences that people have today. You didn't have the opportunity to you know, fly across the world and go to Hong Kong and then go come back later and see a movie and say, oh, hey, I know that place. I've yeah. been there. You, you didn't have that. So to see something as simple as a train, you know, locomotive go by on screen... Or to see a car drive right. across the screen. And so that was big. And in fact, early films, when there was a, someone shot a, a train coming at the camera, people were physically stunned because they thought the train was going to break through the screen. Yeah, they'd never seen anything like it. Exactly. We had to remember that that's a point in time where that was earth shattering. Yeah. You know? It's hard for us to imagine that today. Yeah, definitely. But imagine the actors that you see on television yeah. suddenly materializing in your home and performing the scene in front of you. I would that, say that would be the equivalent yeah. of what these folks were experiencing. I would say the closest thing to it is to experience a true domed screen IMAX theater. Okay, sure. That's the closest feeling you're going to get, which is still not there, but the physically involved, overwhelming experience would probably be about one-tenth the feeling of, oh, crap, there's going to be a train that's going <laughs> to break through the, the wall. You know, my, I, I think about stories my grandfather told me when he was a young boy. And growing up here in San Jose, and when our very first Palace Theater opened in this area in the 1920s, uh, him going and seeing it, just a short time before he he ended up going back to Europe, but uh, he loved it. 
The yeah. whole family would go. Yeah. And it would be five cents. You come on in. That's why they call them Nickelodeons. Because well, hang on. We're getting we're getting a little jumbled up here. Because, yes, there, there, there was definitely the Nickel theaters. But we still need to talk about how movie palaces got their distinction from regular movie theaters. Fair enough. Yeah. Because Nickelodeons were your, were your everyman theater. And that's the best part about them, right? They were cheap overhead. They, they were not well kept at first. They were dirty, kind of dingy. People uh, could smoke. People could... You know, there was no, there was no, um, there's no fire codes. There was no fire codes. Absolutely. There yeah. was no understanding of the way people should act. Right. Exactly. People could all... go in there and be loud and obnoxious and, and people didn't really care. Well, keep in mind too, because there was also no dialogue at this point. These were still silent movies. There's Heck, sometimes makers... there wasn't even any music at that point. Right. Exactly. And no, but some had like a piano, piano player who was playing a score that was given to them to go along with the movie. And then they'd either have like a short film program that was 20 minutes long, followed by a couple other like side pieces like news and stuff. Or actually, I think that came later. But nevertheless, you had a short program or a long program. Yeah. And a long program would be like 80 minutes. And this is where we can talk about the cultural impact that we're talking about. Because it's silent, what's the one thing you don't have to worry about? Acting. Well, no, no acting is definitely... <laughs> I'm just kidding. Acting is very visual. What's oh, the yeah. one thing you don't have to worry about if, there's, if it's all silent? I don't know. Language. Oh... Right? Oh, that's right. Yes, you've got title work going on, which we'll talk about in our Oscar episode. But you could you could substitute that with a with a translation, or you don't even have to worry about it because that is just there to support what's already happening on screen. The actors are expressing a lot of that without them having to say a single word. So naturally, when you have these immigrations coming to America in the late nineteenth century, you're going to have people who are going to be drawn to that because they're already have as is trying to assimilate into American culture. They, they're already having difficulties adjusting to learning English and things like that. This is one place they can go where they can feel like they're, like they're with everybody else, right? To make a quick little parallel, there were tons of cultural theaters that took place in New York around this time, too, that were like there was the Yiddish theater, there was the Latin theaters and things like that. And those were theaters that were done in their own native languages, mm. specifically for that reason. It was the way that they could feel like they were at home again. This was a way where they could feel like they were part of everybody else, hmm. right? Because you didn't, it doesn't matter who you were. It didn't matter because everyone was taking in the same experience and was able to absorb the same experience most of the same way. I can imagine the theater owners would have been uh, in favor of this as well because they weren't just limited to the local movies that were being made in their own country. They could import movies from other countries and play them without any yeah. kind of problem. Well, that is that is true. And then as we get to about World War One we get to an incurring need to basically make them big enough. Like literally these, these theaters were getting too small. They were too small to handle one, the number of people there, but also to keep in code with lots of things that were changing, like smoking laws and basically safety rules, right? Cause you know, the last thing you want is your building going up in smoke. Well, that's literally. essentially what they are. Giant tinder boxes. Right. I mean, you think about early film and how flammable that was. You think about not only people's clothing, but, the fact that they have cigars and, and cigarettes and all of this that they're smoking and probably just throwing on the ground. Sure. it's Yeah, it was a huge hazard. So then that brings us to, well, well then what would people be using then? What spaces are big enough to handle hundreds and hundreds of people? Opera houses, I would guess. Opera houses, exactly. Opera was already starting to fall, fall out of fashion, right? Opera made its way over to the New World with all the other culture from Europe. And was popular up until the you know the early twentieth century with operettas kind of starting to deviate from that in the late nineteenth century. And then again, as we were talking about, Broadway was already starting to take form, right, with musical theater. So you have these grand opera houses, which were designed again to be opulent and to hold lots of people, and the, generally wealthy people. Yeah, that weren't being used, right? And here's the big draw to that: 
upper class people didn't go to the movies because it was considered a lower class thing. Sure. Think about what we just described. Yeah. But the funny thing is the same thing happened with theater in Europe. Grand Opera was the highbrow entertainment. The Commedia dell'arte that happened in Italy was all the lowbrow stuff. And yet that's what we consider theater like today. It's the same cycle over again, just happening with movies. It's ridiculous and also interesting at the same time. Mm. So sure enough, they wanted to be able to market, they being theater owners, to people who could get a premium experience out of going to the movies. Sure. I mean, in 1908, there were 8,000 of these Nickelodeon-type theaters that were in existence in the United States. And they were having a huge draw, an enormous amount of people coming to them. Uh, so not only are we talking about building larger facilities, right, and drawing in more of the regular crowd, but how do you monopolize and take advantage of all the other folks who are not watching your film? And it makes perfect sense. If you know that they're getting a bad reputation among the folks that you know are wealthy or what have you who don't want to come and attend, you're absolutely going to market it to them, which will invite them in. And at the same time, it makes them all that more attractive to the common man. Because now the common man can sit right next to the upper class individual and all of a sudden feel like a million dollars. And think about the feelings you have when you walk into one of these places. How overwhelming it is. How grandiose they are. You feel like royalty. You feel like a king. And that was something that at this time in America, very few people had the opportunity to do. Because life was hard. Life in the early 20th century was very difficult. We take that for granted these days in the 21st century here in America. But for a lot of folks, this was an escape. This is something that they needed. This was something where they could come and feel not just like a million dollars, but also to be able to detach from reality for a minute. To view one of these films, as we've stated previously, was a really powerful experience. And like I said, in the, in the 19-teens and the 1920s, uh, this was this was something that was so very popular for all these reasons. Absolutely, yeah. And there's actually some conjecture over which was the first formal movie palace. There is the Mark Strand Theater in New York, which was built in 1913. That is commonly referred to as the first movie palace. And it's a pretty big theater. It's It's definitely got the same attributes you're looking for. Very large structure, very ornate outer workings and very ornate inner workings. But there's also the Regent Theater that was made in 1914 in Patterson, New Jersey. Yeah, and that, that's the one that came up in my, my research as being that, uh, that yeah. first real legitimate theater, right? Right. And it was in an area of the city where it wasn't quite in the uptown area. It was somewhere in the middle, and it was literally right in the middle of where those two demographics would have gone by it and would have seen it. And what I find interesting is it was originally thought of as a failure because they were spending so much money on making it so large and so elaborate that everybody, all the naysayers, pretty much were already deemed it as being a failure before it ever had an opportunity to open its doors. Right. And what happened? And it being very successful. A massive success. Right. And keep in mind that these were also still multifunctional spaces. They were not exclusively movie theaters. They were also used for live performances. Sure. They were geared for both. So they they actually were getting double their money, really. They had the ability to do live performances, do live acts as well. Yeah. Vaudeville, movies. musical performances. Plays. Movies, plays. Sometimes these were all going on at the same time. Sometimes you would go to one of these events and you would be there for four or five hours. Right. Can you imagine going to the modern movies today? I mean, most folks, like myself, when Martha and I go to the movies, we go, 
we maybe get there a couple minutes early just so we get good seats. But when the show is over, hit the restroom, and we're pretty much gone. Yeah. We're in the parking lot, we're but gone. But this is also a different time, too, because now in the age of the multiplex, you buy a ticket for a movie. At this point, you bought, you pay the price of admission, and you got whatever the program right. was available, right? This, this is a one-screen theater we're talking about. Still, though, to have a multi-bill and variety entertainment in front of you like that, you just don't get that anymore. Yeah, it's true. You pretty much get that on television, which we'll talk about way later on. So, uh, oh, damn it. Just get warmed up. Temple Rift opens up. It always happens. It always happens about this time in the show. It must be on some sort of timer or something. I don't know. Oh, my Lord. Is that Hitler? No, it's not Hitler. It's Charlie Chaplin. Oh. Well, come on up here, Charlie. You can you can talk. Hello. I didn't know you talk. Mm, yes. I do. You don't seem to talk much, though, do you, Charlie? No. Not really. Hmm. You, you understand this whole advertisement thing that we're doing, though, right? Okay. Yeah, yes, okay. He's, he's nodding. He's nodding, yes. All right. Yes. Very good. All right, Mr. Chaplin, go ahead. And so he's... He's pulling out some cue cards from his suitcase, and he's telling us Amazon, Amazon.com. Okay, he's talking about, our, he wants us to talk about our Amazon.com page. Of course, right there we have lots of movies that are available. You can go and download lots of Academy Award-nominated works, as well as uh, stuff by directed by Mr. Chaplin himself. Okay, and now he's doing a bit where he is lighting a cigarette and he's putting the match in his mouth, not the ci- I think he's doing one of his old vaudeville shticks. Mm, yeah. yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm interpreting his meaning, though, and that uh, if you actually go to Amazon.com and click on one of those links and buy something, anything, really, that helps support Nerdonomy. I think that's the symbolism of the match, not so much the cigar. The cigar is just kind of confusing me. And now he's eating the match, and then... Oh, okay. (coughs) Mr. Chaplin must not have done this bit in quite some time. Are you you all right? Yes. All right. Well, hey, it looks like the rift is opening back up again. Not a moment too soon. Yeah. Uh, Goodbye. Goodbye, Mr. Chaplin. Goodbye, young skinny Hitler. He he raised his... Yeah, that was interesting. Definitely interesting. Um, We've really... We've got to put some sort of filter on this rift... Because I get it, Charlie Chaplin's famous, but and can he's we get really historical... not that great for advertising. And can we get a historical figure post-internet? I mean, I think all these guys are confused about what Amazon.com is. Uh, incidentally, if you're ever interested, uh, The Great Dictator, one of his best works, it was, I believe, a Best Picture winner. And it's the only film where his famous character, The Tramp, talks. Hmm. Uh, as well, because he looks identical to the German dictator, Adnoy Hinkle. <laughs> Yes, so he makes fun of the fact that he looks like Hitler by playing a version of Hitler. It's it's actually quite genius. Hitler stole his mustache. And ruined that look for the rest of humanity. (laughs) Forever and ever. Forever and ever. Anyway, back to uh, what we were discussing, which was the history of the movie Palace, right? So um, you're right. I mean, the the whole idea was that you could be king for for a day. And, yeah, I mean, as we're getting into the 1920s, we're getting to a a huge part of America where we had tremendous prosperity, tremendous wealth. But then we get into the Great Depression. And we're also, interestingly enough, getting into talking movies. Talking movies, they thought was going to be the death of theater. It was not. But definitely it, it made the studio system kind of hit its peak, right? But here's the other part. 
that, that we don't talk about when we talk about the studio system is that who was owning these theaters? Yes, a lot of them were, were originally created by the architects and the managers, but there's a certain point where the studios started to buy and create their own movie palaces. And the first person who really had control over this was, was Edison with the Nickelodeons. And a guy named William Fox, who was trying to make his own living as a theater exhibitioner, ended up suing him. And in 1912, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Fox to cut down from Edison's monopoly. And the irony is, what did they end up doing? The industry ended up creating their own monopoly. They call, it was called vertical integration, where they had control. And we talked about this in the Cinematron Prime episode. We did, yeah. Where they had control over production, distribution, and an exhibition. Tell me, Eric, William Fox, do you know who he is? Uh, he's the founder of what would later merge uh, and become 20th Century Fox, yeah, what we had, know today. Yeah, he was the owner and proprietor of Fox Studios, right? Smaller studio, again, from the earlier days of film, like RKO, right? RKO eventually eventually went out of business. And eventually, you're right, he ended up <laughs> having to sell a lot of his movie houses, and uh, he ended up being bought out by 20th Century Films, and 20th Century and Fox Studios merged together, and that's why the 20th Century Dash Fox exists, right? But, you know, let's make it really clear, for four decades, these five major movie studios that exist in the United States, after the whole Edison fiasco. Yeah. So, they, they had con total, total control, not only over the creating and distributing of these movies, but over those very theaters and, and movie palaces uh, that we're talking right. about. Just so, five companies. Let's talk about the big five, right? We're talking about Warner Brothers, Paramount, Universal, though there's really no Universal theaters left. There are still Paramount theaters and there are still Fox theaters left, even though they're not owned by them anymore. Right. So we had Fox, Warner... Paramount and uh, RKO, RKO, and then Universal, right? Yeah, those are those were the big guys, right? All the other studios may have had partnerships, like MGM. I think had theaters as well. They um, think they were just called the Mayor Theaters. There was the Orpheum Theater. Like they didn't, they weren't all called after the, the studios' names, but they were owned by all the studios. And the worst part is, you know, you had these companies who were making films and then distributing them only to the theaters that they were in partnership with. Right. So they had created. So whole cuts of the United States were prohibited from seeing some of these great movies because they just didn't happen to have the, the same theater owners who were also producers of the films nearby. And even though the Great Depression had hit its major spike in 1929, did the film industry suffer? Yes, a little bit. For the first couple of years, it did. But film was cheap entertainment. You know, film, you could still go to the movies for a nickel. Granted, it was a, a, a hard earned nick, harder earned nickel than before. Sure, but at the rate films were being produced, I mean, to remember that the studio system was cranking out films one per week. Yeah, like that's how much they were able to, to crank out. You know, to the point now where hey, you don't have to worry about one movie. You can now actually have multiple movies playing at the same theater at different times. Right? They were able to craft a full business out of it. And not only that, but it was it was now ingrained into part of American culture. Sure. It was something where now you had a whole new generation that was being exposed to it for the first time. Right. Uh, young children who were being born into the movies, if you will. And not only that, but we're talking about these companies still making a profit off of it, even with the rest of the decline of the economy. Because we're talking about five companies having 70% of ticket sales yeah. in the entirety of the United States. Right. 70%. Yeah. Even, and even with a decrease in attendance. That's still generating a huge amount of money. 
Yeah, and they've still continued to build these movie palaces. Though the one thing did change, which the, which was the architectural style. In theory, indirectly based on FDR becoming president in 1930, well, formally being elected in 1932, but of course he took office in 1933, and he had this whole new deal, right? He was going, he had a plan for getting us out of the depression. Tons of public works projects. A lot of those were ended up being unconstitutional, but he he had a plan. And one of, one of the things we were trying to do was embrace a, a future, a new future. So these more classically designed movie palaces became out of fashion. They weren't torn down, but some of them were renovated. But we they gave birth to the more the modern age, right? And we don't consider it mo- modern anymore. We consider it Art Deco now. But right. Yeah, <laughs> right. But you've got some of the best architecture though being used. Um, the best example of this is Radio City Music Hall. That was in 1937. Yeah, I mean that marquee was originally a movie palace, right? It was yeah. a, it was a, a multifunctional space, and that, I mean talk about big marquees. This is where you get the big marquees, the big signs that that marquee is like a city block tall. It's it's, it's gigantic. Huge. I walked I walked by it a couple months ago. It is really it is very very big, and I mean, there's tons of examples uh, still all over the country. Uh, of where you can find these Art Deco designs. Yeah, um, and, and Radio City is very powerful because when you're in there, it's like being on the surface of the sun. It is sure. so bright. It is so overpowering. These arches are enormous uh, that, that cover the stage. And we're talking about 160 feet from the front of the stage to the to the back of the auditorium and 84 feet tall. Sure. So it's an enormous area. Yeah. I, I would be pissed if I got there late and the only seating was in the very back. Right. How could you see anything? <laughs> but you also do, you don't just get the Art Deco designs, right? I mean, yes, there's tons of theaters there, and, and we're skipping over ones. There are beautiful examples all over the country that of theaters that still exist, by the way, that yeah. have the Art Deco design. I believe the Pantages Theater down in L.A. is a, which was originally uh, a movie house. Now it's just for, for theater works, uh, works of, of theater, I should say. Um, is a Art Deco design. Um, but there's also atmospheric designs, too. That was more referring to the internals. Like, they actually had a, a ceiling that looked like it was from the sky. But, I mean, think about the other more non-Art Deco, but non-classical works, like Grauman. Sid Grauman made two iconic movie theaters in Hollywood. They're down the street from one another. The Chinese and the Egyptian theaters. And he went into a lot of detail for these, I mean, it's kind of kind of amazing. Like, first of all, the the Chinese theater was was made in 1927, right? And it was <laughs> the opening film that was premiered there was Cecil B. DeMille's King of Kings, a biblical film. So it was meant to be, it was epic from its very very beginnings. But it's amazing. Like they they got authorization from the U.S. government to import temple bells from China. The pagodas that you see, the famous pagodas there in the top for the roofs, are from China. And those stone heaven dogs that are that are guarding the entryway to the building, those are from China. Like he went into explicit detail to get this authentic look for the, for the work, um, at least for the Chinese one. Yes. Well, the Egyptian one, uh, we haven't you haven't seen it, but I mean, I've seen many pictures of it. Yeah, and and that had to do with the fascination with Egypt because of uh, King Tut's tomb being discovered in 1922, and that happened, I believe, in 1925. I think was when the, when that was made. Um, but these guys still exist to this day. The, the irony is that Grauman, the, the Chinese theater, was never Chinese until recently. Oh, it, really? Yeah, that's the funny thing. Uh, so, I mean, major, major movies get debuted there every year. Star Wars debuted at the Grauman's Chinese theater. 
Uh, originally, it was eventually it was uh, bought by Man's uh, Theater Company, and uh, now it's owned by TCL, which is a such as a Chinese communications company, that, and they they own exclusive uh, partnership over it for the next decade. So, funny little thing. You know what I find so fascinating is if you look at Europe, and you look at the same time period. This is almost kind of showing off, if you will, kind of a slap in the face to national socialism and also communism, who both these these countries that were steeped in it at that time were very much trying to retain and hold on to the classical sense of architecture. And while you found that definitely in the earlier uh, movie palaces, now you had, like you said, Art Deco and these other inspirations from other parts of the world, other cultures, inspiring the design of these these grand buildings that so many people are coming to, to view what is really an art in its own form, which is theater. Right. And I think that is just so fascinating, because you look at, you know, like we've talked in our previous episode, mm-hmm. look at what the Nazis were doing to modern Cubist art deco yeah, art, if you will. They were trying to destroy it. We, we, were, we were flaunting it. We were, we were praising it. Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure a lot of that has to do with the fact that so much of that movement started in Europe. And as these people began to be displaced or were forced out of their countries, uh, many of them made their way to America and brought that with them. And even though Art Deco is considered to be very American, yeah, it really is um, both European and American. But, but a lot of that influence was happening in Europe and came over to America as a result of all that. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. I think it, it speaks a lot to the time. Uh, you know, I, I, I think it's also worth mentioning that the Great Depression very dramatically changed a lot of these theaters. Now the the type of shows that were being shown has changed. And you had, in the 1930s, you the had Live gone, acts had to go. That was the first thing oh, yeah. to go. Yeah. Absolutely they had to go. The design of these theaters were changing as, as a result, whereas you had these great big stages and pits for, for musicians, and all of, this, uh, all of that was, was ending up in, in disappearing from the architectural design of these new theaters. Right, of course, the famous organ pit where you could have the organist play the music before the movie and all that, yeah. It was all going. Uh, Food had oftentimes been allowed just to walk into the doors. They weren't selling food. They might have had some theaters where there were vendors on the outside, but now they were realizing this is actually something we could be making money off of. Right, and so you start to get see popcorn because they were cheap. Peanuts, I think, were originally early on. Movie snacks as well. Candy, of course, right? Keep in mind, the film industry was taking so much from the actual ticket sales. This is one way that theaters were able to stay open, was by selling those very well, concessions. Well, I mean, I think after the vertical integration breakdown, yes, for sure, that's how the, that's why you go to the movies today and it's $5 for popcorn. Yeah. But before this, it doesn't matter. The studios were raking in almost everything, right? Yeah. Because they had, they had owned everything. But, you know, point. it's worth stating that 90 million people a week were going to the theater in 1930. During the peak of the Great Depression, that had dropped about 60 million. Yeah. So it was a pretty dramatic drop. It was a pretty dramatic drop, but it didn't kill it entirely, right? No. It was able to hold on. Believe it or not, World War II helped with that yeah. in some regard. Because now uh, newsreels were being introduced into the, the regular lineup of these theater shows. And not only that, but they were selling bonds this way as well. War bonds that were important to keeping the war effort going. Sure. So it was bringing people back to the theater. And when you're talking about being in hard times and wanting to escape from reality, the world has seen fewer hard times than during the years of the Second World War between 1939 and 1945, 1946. Those are periods where the, the world was in total states of shock. And something like this, just something as simple as going to the theater, had a profound impact 
on not just American psyche, but from people around the world. Yeah, sure, sure. And as we get toward the end of World War II, we begin to see the decline in movie theater attendance in general, um, largely due to the fact that television was starting to become more more affordable. It still wasn't in every household yet, but it was definitely becoming much more economical. Uh, and everyone thought that was going to kill movies, right? That was the death of, of movies. And that's when you start to see these movie palaces close down. They become they go, they developed more economically based theaters. They begin to make theaters that have either, you know, these weird concepts, smell-o-vision, 3D. I'm curved. sorry, smell-o-vision was a real thing? They, they tried it. How? Know, aromatic things they would spring at certain times. Seriously? Yeah, it didn't last very long, obviously. Didn't didn't really catch on. But yeah, it was... It I actually like ex- that. I wish they'd do that now. Well, they actually have it at California Adventure at Disneyland. They have, uh, when you're soaring over California, they, it is smell-o-vision. They actually put atmospheric sense. So if you're flying over, for example, uh, the Sierras, you smell pine trees. It's kind of cool. That's awesome. Yeah. They should do that in movies. Again, bring it back. Well, I demand smell-o-vision. You should come to Disneyland then. Uh, but the sad thing is a lot of these theaters closed down. In fact, most of them closed down and thankfully there's there's a couple hundred left and i might be over exaggerating that number but there there are still some left in this country if not palaces then at least very well designed theaters a couple of the ones we like we were talking about um like i said the the grauman shut shut down but was eventually in the late 80s with the uh, effort to reinvigorate the hollywood and vine district of la uh, was was renovated for $12 million. Same thing happened with the El Capitan Theater. The El Capitan Theater was a beautiful Spanish-style uh, movie house and also theater um, that uh, ended up closing down, but or, or ended up declining, I should say. It never really closed down. But then Disney bought it in 1989. They sunk a bunch of money into it, and now it's where all of Disney's movies premiere. The first one being the more modern version being uh, The Rocketeer in 1991. And so movie houses now are just kind of this novelty, right? Um, the one I really love is the one that's in our own backyards, the Stanford Theater. And there's a oh, couple I more. I love the Stanford yeah. Theater. There's also the Alameda Theater in Alameda, California, which and, is a brilliant Art Deco theater. And the Paramount Theater in Oakland. Yes, one of many. The Orpheum Theater up in San Francisco used to be one. There was also an Orpheum down in L.A. that was considered the Orpheum Circuit. So, um, I just want to share a real quick story because when I was a kid, uh, my sister and I, we used to go for drives. You know, I She got her license You know, when I was still a kid. And as such, she and I would go out on these adventures, and she thought, well, let's go to the Stanford Theater. And I was like, I have no idea what that is. She said, let's go see the birds. So we went to go see it. It was actually a Hitchcock double feature. Yeah. It was the 39 Steps and the beer and the Birds. It was such an incredible experience. Yeah. I still remember it to this day. And you and I also think we may have actually gone to the theater around the same time. Remember you, yeah, you, yeah, you and your brother? Yeah, I was there on my 15th birthday, yeah. <laughs> Isn't yeah. that weird? It is definitely weird. Let's take a talk a quick second about it, because that was made, built in 1925. It never actually closed. It always kind of played old movies, but it eventually did fall into disrepair. But thankfully, the Packard Foundation, which is the, the generous wing of, of HP, uh, of course, H, for those who don't know, HP was started in Palo Alto, California, where the Stanford Theater is. And so they decided to restore it because it was the only movie palace left in Palo Alto. And there were other ones that were gutted uh, where they kept the nice facades, but they were turned into other places. So they, they kept the Stanford. And now it's pretty much it's the coolest museum ever because you go in and it's now devoted to preserving and showing classic movies. And they have festivals. They have schedules they do for all these old films. I think we've talked about it before, but it bears repeating. 
they have a beautiful uh, museum, a, a, a gallery of old movie posters that they've preserved, and they have lit up just like they were the old marquees uh, they had before. So cool. Uh, w- more interesting to point out, though, in 1992, when it became the 50th anniversary of Casablanca, more people saw Casablanca in that theater than anywhere else in the country when it was re-released. Very cool. And they had worked it out with Warner Brothers. They got to see the, the, the 50th anniversary cut. That just talks about the magic of Hollywood, right? To a degree. Because we, when we think about going to the movies, there is that still, for me, I still am looking for that luster, that luxury feeling. The feeling like I'm in a different world. Not that I'm a king for a day, but that I'm in someplace special. Yeah. You know? And that's why I still prefer to go to movie theaters versus to watch movies at home. I don't mind watching movies at home, but I I really like to share in the experience. I really like to feel like I'm going somewhere special. Well, there really is nothing quite like seeing it on the big screen. Right. And many of these movies are designed for that. They're designed to draw you into the theater to see it. And and I'm just worried that we're we're making the same cycle again now that studios are experimenting with with, uh, different ticket prices. Now they're talking about doing different tiered movie prices uh, they're talking now. There's all these premium theaters like the ArcLight, where you pay more money but you get a better experience. Uh, cool concepts like in Texas, the the Alamo uh, Draft House, right? Uh, theaters where you have like the, every seat is a recliner with a little uh, nightstand next to it, so you can be totally comfortable. They're trying to make the experience a premium one again, which is probably a good thing. I just don't want it to be exclusionary. I don't want it to be like, oh, this is what these people go to and this is what everyone else goes to, you know, culturally speaking. Yeah. I I don't know if it ever will go back to that elitist feeling, but it just, it's one of those things where, you know, you see the the signs, you want to make sure history does not repeat itself. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. You know, I I think that um, there are a fascinating way of telling the story of early 20th century America. And I encourage anyone who has a, movie palace nearby that's still in operation that's still functioning maybe it serves as a museum maybe it actually has showings like the stanford theater does go out there go experience it for yourself take a little trip in a time machine and you will not regret it it is a lot of fun and folks if you want to see a place where you can find your movie houses there we're going to post a couple of sites that where you can find movie palaces there are entire historical societies devoted to preserving these and all in all forms of theater architecture but particularly movie palaces. Yeah. So uh, you will have your resources available when we post the show notes for this episode. Excellent. Well, sir, thank you for letting me take you on this journey. It was fantastic. It really was. Like I said from the get-go, I had no idea how fascinating that was, this was going to be. Absolutely. Uh, until we sat down and started talking about it. I really enjoyed diving into this part of film history because uh, it's one that doesn't get talked about, I think, very much. At least not... In film schools, I remember talking about this in a media studies class, but not in a film theory class necessarily. Yeah, you know, I'm really glad that you sold me on this because it was an interesting topic. It was a lot of fun. And um, it's kind of bittersweet for me, too, because this will be my last episode for all of the month of March. Yeah, because you're going on paternity leave. I am. I'm I'm taking time off. I will still be very active with the company, obviously. That's not not happening, but I'm not going to be actively recording during that time because i'll be home with my little baby with my little amelia she's coming soon first of all i just want to thank you for picking up my slack while i'm gone i'd like to thank thank me yet (laughs) (laughs) you'll be fine you'll be fine you'll be fine i've never done this by myself folks well that's not true i did it once but i've never done it with somebody else other than eric so you're you're gonna do great you're gonna do a fantastic job 
I, I want to thank you, though, and I want to thank all of our mystery guests who will be coming in for Mystery March, where we'll be doing a whole month of mysteries from history. And I, I want to thank all of those individuals, whoever you are. Uh, I want to thank our listeners for letting me go and let me have a little bit of a break. I have only ever missed one episode of Nerds on History. That's true. You've had better attendance than I have because I took a whole. <laughs> I think I think I took a whole eight weeks off, uh, or like a whole ten episodes off collectively then, over time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was trying to get my degree done, and then the lemiserating, lemiserating. Yeah, and now yeah. I'm baby babyating. Yeah. Regardless, though, yeah. um, it's kind of it's it's kind of scary for me. This is my baby. I love sitting in front of this mic every week. It's going to be weird not doing that. But obviously, my actual biological baby kind of takes precedent. Uh, so, so I, I think our listeners will understand. Folks, this is coming from the man who opened up his home to our studio. Keep that in mind. Like our studio is at Eric's house. So, you know, it's a very serious commitment. You know, he's, we're, and I just want to say thank you for letting us continue to use your place while you are on leave, because honestly, this stuff is, is hard to move. Um, but, <laughs> but, but also just thank you because I know you're committed to making this work. So absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, listeners, if you want to engage in the conversation about everything that we've talked about today, uh, or even just to wish me wish me luck with a new baby, whatever you want to do, go to our website, click on our links for our social media pages. It will take you, of course, to our Facebook page and to our company Twitter page, at Nerdonomy. And, uh, of course, you can reach us at our personal Nerdonomy handles. What's yours, Brian? I'm at Brian Moriarty. And, of course, I'm at The Brickmont. And uh, you can always click on our button for listener feedback. We love to hear things from you they oftentimes become future episodes and uh, you add so many different layers to the conversation uh each and every week so please listeners give us your feedback and if you can find it in your heart hit that little donation button give us just a little bit of moolah we are so close to paying off the computer we have one, one payment left and we're actually halfway more. there too we just need just a little bit more oh we're oh almost there almost there and then we can actually start like using the money for other stuff other than stuff we've already acquired yeah you know, that would be helpful. It <laughs> would be very helpful, like maybe production value toward videos or other podcasts, perhaps. Mm-hmm. We'll see. You shall see. Until next time, stay nerdy. And tune into us next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. I'll be back. Brian, okay, you, you agree that we, we should alternate on who says welcome to Nerds on History every week, right? Yes. So why don't we ever alternate on who says the whole stay nerdy, join us next week, uh, you know, spiel that we do at the very end? It's always you. When do I get an opportunity to do it? Huh? When when will, will you? Yeah. When do it? I get a chance? I am the master. Oh, great. Now he's going to try it on me. You will obey. Obey me. You will obey me. I will obey you. You will always let me do the ending of the episodes. I will always let you do the ending of the episodes. Jerk. Jerk.